I'd like you to turn to First uh, Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 5. We're going to take a look at the entire book a little bit today. And while you're turning there, I want to uh, remind you, as you all know, we're enthusiastic supporters of the ministry at Carinet Pregnancy Center. Kelly and I are going to be hosts at their annual fundraising banquet in October. If you would like to join us, if you'd like to have a seat at our table, we would love to have your company. Uh, you can go to the CareNet website and sign up. There's an option for who you want to seat with. You can say, we don't want to seat with John, or we do want to seat with John. Uh, they'll respect your wishes either way. But it'd be nice if we could all go together. So if you're interested in going, uh, you can go to the website and sign up, or you can come and talk to me. I can help you with that. And also, don't forget the movie Friday night, starting at 6.30. We've got snacks and concessions showing, I can only imagine, uh, it's a community outreach. It's a fundraiser for CareNet. They'll be making a, a presentation at the end. We'll take a love offering for them as well. So there's two opportunities to minister to the community there this week and then in October. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. The first apartment I had, I rented in 1973, was in Erie, Pennsylvania. I was in the attic of an old house. It was two blocks off of Lake Erie, kind of wet environment. I had, this lady was a landlord. She looked to me like she was probably mid-60s or so. Very nice lady. But she took me up and showed me the apartment. It was $90 a month. I thought it was all the money in the world. Uh, I had a small room. There was a bed. And almost touching the bed was what looked to me like a stove. I was afraid to use it. She said, if it gets cold in here, you can turn the heat on by lighting the stove. My bathroom was one floor down where the sink was, and I had a chair, and there was just enough room to stand up between the bed and the stove and the chair. But it was 90 bucks a month, and I needed an apartment, and I thought, well, this is great. She wanted two months up front. Uh, I had to scrape together money to get $180 to give her for the apartment. And I'd been there for about a month or so, and I had some friends who wanted to come over and see where I lived, and I thought, well, that's not going to work. Uh, there's just no, either you're in the apartment or you're out of the apartment. There's no place for two people to stand. So I got home that afternoon, and the lady was standing there, and she had yeah, been there for just a little while, and she said, well, how are things going? I said, well, they're going okay, but, you know, I don't really have any room. I, some friends wanted to come over, and she went, why don't you use the rest of the attic? And I went, rest of the attic? I think I'm in the attic. That's it. There, you know, I'd have to move the chair out. She said, no, 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 come in the show. We went upstairs, and she went to the side wall, 
and there was a, a plywood panel there, and she slid it aside, and there's this whole attic in there. And there's chairs and a couch and all that stuff. And I'm looking in there, and I went, oh, my gosh, that, that's huge. She said, oh, yeah, this is for you. This is, this is part of your rent. Well, I didn't realize, I, I mean, the whole, I, I was happy with the apartment. I didn't realize that there was more. I was unaware of the fact that there was more. I was pleased with where I was, but there was something that I was totally oblivious to that I had the advantage of, and, you know, until the lady moved the panel. Well, for me, it was like having a whole new apartment. I, this is fantastic. You know, I had to move out two months later, but for the month and a half that I, I, I stayed, two months that I stayed there, I, was, I had room to have my friends over. So well, what does that have to do with today? Well, you know, I was listening to Pastor Scott's series, and, and I got to tell you, I, I am blessed that, that to see the Lord working in his life and building him up to be a man of the Word of God. Uh, I thought it was a fantastic series. I, I listened closely to each message, and I was edified, I was nourished by it, and so that gave me some ministry, some, some of the nourishment that I needed while I was on vacation. But there was, there was one moment in the second week where uh, Pastor Scott was making a point, and he said this. He said, God is not an influence on our lives. God is our lives. And that just kind of lingered in my spirit for a while. And, and I realized that there, there are a lot of times where I see God as some kind of outside force working on me. And I forget that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, that we're being transformed from the inside out, not from the outside in. And that God is not just another thing that draws me to one area or another area. God is my life. Without God, I have no life. I certainly have no eternal life without his son. Now, how, how might that affect our lives if we began seeing God as our lives. You see, God as our lives is the more. We know he's there. We know that we owe him everything. We know that everything that we have comes from him, but do we know that he is our lives? See, and for, for that moment, the panel was moved from me, and I saw more than I had ever seen before. He's not just an external force on my life. He is my life. Now, as, as, as we all kind of ponder that, as we absorb it, just think about how this will impact our walk. And what I want to talk to you about for the next couple months before Christmas is how that thought will impact our prayers. How will it affect our prayer life? Now, you know, we are a praying church. Every time we ask for prayer requests, we get a number of people volunteering to do it, and that's fantastic. Um, and the prayers that we lift up, I believe, are blessed. I believe they're anointed. And, you know, we, we can pray in a lot of different ways. Uh, I know a lot of us have daily prayers, and we probably do about the same time every day. A lot of us have prayer requests. Uh, Scott prayed for a couple of prayer requests we had first thing this morning. Okay, so we, we pray for the events in our lives. We pray for our jobs. We pray for our health. We pray for relationships that we have. We pray for the circumstances that we fall under. We pray for trials and tribulations that we go through. 
We pray for people that are close to us, for loved ones. We pray about our fears. We pray about our worries. We pray about our concerns. We can pray about our passions. We pray for the lost. We pray for the body of Christ. We pray for the church. We pray for direction. We pray for wisdom. We pray for our neighbors, for our bosses, for our classmates when we're in school. Those are all good prayers. We're called to take our supplications to the Lord. We're called to to take our petitions to him. There's nothing wrong with those prayers. They're fantastic. I believe God bless them. But here's the question for the morning. What if there's more? What if there's more? What if there's more to our prayer life? What if there's more than than going to God with the things that we would like to see him do? Again, there's nothing wrong with that. But what if God is calling us something deeper? What if God is calling us something more profound? See, Paul, Paul thought that there was something more. Paul thought that there was a deeper prayer life. And we can see it in his prayers. And we're going to get a, a hint at that today. We're just going to get a glimpse at it. We're not going to go deep into it. We'll do that in, in the, the, the coming weeks. We'll explore this a little bit deeper. And so this new series is called Pray Without Ceasing. Uh, this is part one, uh, and you'll find out why it's called Prayer Without Ceasing in just a few, few minutes. The, uh, and, and we want to take a look at how prayer was part of Paul's life, and I, I think First Thessalonians is a really good place to start with this. Uh, let me give you a little background on the book. It was written around 50, maybe 51 A.D. It was a very early letter, probably came very quickly after Galatians, which is the first letter that Paul wrote. Um, so it's early in Paul's career. It's relatively early in his theological growth. Um, it's early in the life of the church. Uh, and, and this is written to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, now, now there, there's a history there, okay? Uh, Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. Macedonia was a very important province to Rome, uh, of course, the emperor was in Rome, and they were ruling the entire known world at that point. But Thessalonica was a very rich city. It was very prosperous. It was busy. It was another one of those cities that was at a crossroads for all the world's trade to go through. We've seen a number of those. Uh, Paul has a tendency to go to these cities and preach the gospel, knowing that if he can establish a church in a city like that, that the gospel will be carried along the trade routes and go throughout the region. So Thessalonica is very similar to, to Ephesus and, and Philippi and a few other cities that Paul's been through. Now, as, as big as Thessalonica was, it was populated. I mean, it had all the deities in the world had collected there. There were temples all over the place. Uh, there, were, there were different types of worship and different types of faiths, but there were two very strong cults that were centered in Thessalonica. Uh, one of them was the cult of the, the imperial, the imperial cult. And this cult believed that the emperor of Rome was a deity, that he was a direct descendant of God or that he was God himself. Now, you can fast forward a couple hundred years and see where that might have had an impact on, on the church eventually. So we had the imperial cult, and then we had the cult of Kiberis. 
Now, Kyberis, legend says that Kyberis was a young, good-looking, strong, virile man who was killed by his brothers. And when his brothers killed him, uh, they hid the body at the base of Mount Olympus. And the gods looked down upon Kyberis and found favor with him and raised him up out of the grave and made him a god. So the cult of Kyberis worshipped this young, strong, good-looking man. And it was not just the man that they worshipped, it was the fact that he was young. They worshipped youth. They worshipped strength. They worshipped beauty and attraction. Now, again, take that and extrapolate that into our, our, uh, uh, our culture today and see if there might be any differences. So these two cults dominated Thessalonica. They were extremely powerful. They were extremely powerful politically and spiritually, and Paul arrives in Thessalonica from Philippi. Now, if you're familiar with what happened to Paul in Philippi, he went in and preached the gospel there. That town was populated by retired Roman soldiers, and again, he upset the status quo in Philippi. They ran him out of Philippi. He goes about 90 miles west and lands in Thessalonica, and he started this new church. Now, he hadn't been there too long, but he had a core group of Jewish believers that joined the church, and they were out evangelizing the Gentiles. The church was growing very quickly. It was becoming very popular, and it started to attract the attention of the leaders of these two cults. He ran into trouble. Now, the one thing you didn't want to do was create unrest in the Roman Empire. They were busy trying to expand the borders of the Roman Empire, and they didn't want to have to send soldiers in to quell any disturbance inside the empire. And if they did, then the city leaders would probably be assassinated and then replaced by people that could maintain the peace. So these two cults began opposing the new church. And they began opposing Paul, and uh, there was a great uproar. They literally chased him out of the city. Uh, he went south to Berea, about 30 miles south, and eventually went south from there into uh, Corinth and to Athens. But he was concerned about the church. He knew it was a new church. He knew they were just getting on their feet. He was concerned about their theological foundations. He was concerned about their spiritual welfare. So he wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians. And he did it to establish the essentials. He did it to start laying a foundation for them. He wanted to check up and make sure that they were okay, that they were adhering to the teaching that he gave them while he was there. He wanted to make sure that whatever started coming from that, that the church would survive and thrive and continue to go forward. And so today, as we look at this first letter, we're going to see two foundational elements in this letter that Paul wants to establish in the church in Thessalonica and would establish here in our church as well, in the body of Christ today. Paul's going to teach these two foundational elements throughout all of his letters. We're going to kind of walk through them and, and find them in each of the letters he wrote. And so we're going to see two things. We're going to see a foundational teaching, and we're going to see a foundational prayer. We'll see the foundational prayer first, then we'll take a look at the teaching. Now, to find the foundational prayer, we're going to have to go back to chapter 1. Turn there in your Bible to chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. 
Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, this is a typical greeting, but I want you to look closely at it. Because what Paul says is you're constantly in our prayers. Now, this word shows up in our passage today. And constantly means without ceasing. It's the same word, just a little bit of nuance, but Paul's trying to get the same idea across. And here's where Paul lays the foundation for prayer. Now, Paul might say, because he's worried about the church, he might say, you've been on my mind, you've been on my heart, I'm going to pray for you to find favor with the Thessalonians. Or maybe I'm going to pray for you to be protected while you do this church. Or maybe I'm going to pray for you to prosper. I'm going to pray for you to grow. I'm going to pray for you to be healthy. I'm going to pray that no sickness hinders you. I'm going to pray for your particular needs. I know I've heard that some of you are looking for a job. You're suffering hardship because you joined this church. I'm going to pray for your homes. I'll pray for your relationships. I'll pray for the trials and the tribulations you go through. And all that would be good because they need prayer for that sort of thing. I believe all that would be blessed by God. There's nothing wrong with that. But I believe that Paul wants more for them. I believe he wants to move the panel and show them how big the room is. Take a look at Paul's prayer. Verse 3. Remembering before God our Father your work of faith. First thing that comes to mind is the faith that you have exhibited as we put this church together and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember your faith. I remember your love. I remember how true you were to the call. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God. I know that you're loved by God. I know that you're loved by God because he has chosen you. I've seen the Spirit moving in you. I've seen your enthusiasm. I've seen your excitement. I've seen truth flow from you into the people around you. That's why the church is growing. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you, and not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And here, Paul says, I've seen the transformation. I've seen the Spirit inhabit this church. I've seen his power flowing to you and through you, and I've seen other people being changed because of the church that you're becoming. I see the change in you, and you're seeing the change in others. That's evidence of your salvation. It's evidence of God moving among you. Then he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you know who I was. You know what I did for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, And in verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So you followed after me. I've been changed. You know who I was, and you know what I've become. And you followed after me as I followed after Christ. 
And because you were faithful in doing that, because you were faithful in not just proclaiming the gospel, but in living the gospel, in demonstrating the changes God through you, in putting God on display, because of that, your fame is spreading. People are talking about you. People know about you. And that's going to cause more people to come and more people to be changed. It's an incredible prayer. And if you listen carefully to what he's praying, he prayed for their relationship with the Lord. First and above everything, he prayed for a healthy relationship with the Lord. He prayed for their testimony. He prayed for their transformation, their ongoing growth in the Lord. He prayed for them to live out the gospel in the town that they've been placed in. And it's a foundational prayer that if if you stop and think about it, it's a foundational prayer that covers every need a believer could have. Paul doesn't have to go into the details. Paul doesn't have to say, I know some of you are looking for jobs. God knows that. Paul prays for a healthy relationship with the Lord and for the gospel to be flowing through them and demonstrated to those people around them. And if that's going to happen, then their needs are going to be met. They're going to be healthy. They're going to be healthy spiritually. They're going to be wealthy spiritually. Maybe not materially, but that's not the point here. The point is eternal transformation. And that's what Paul prays for. And and in doing that, he shows them how they should pray. Now, Paul knows that this type of prayer and this type of teaching will take some time to adjust to. He gets it, okay? So he begins slowly, right here in 1 Thessalonians. He he, he just begins slowly. He's going to continue to teach this type of prayer throughout his entire career. I mean, he'll be teaching the same thing when he writes 2 Timothy. But he wants to show people how to pray And he starts with this foundational prayer. He says, here's what I'm praying for you. Let this be your example. As you follow me as I follow Christ, pray like this. Now, there's a book into this, and it appears in chapter 5. They're a very similar situation. Uh, And and, and if we take a look at chapter 5, turn there in your Bibles. Uh, You take a look in the first five verses. We talk about the end times. Those five verses attract a lot of attention. And you know what? Uh, They're really interesting. They're kind of fascinating to look at. Uh, We can talk about the whys and the wherefores of the end times. And uh, those of you who came and and heard the talk on uh, the the millennial times knows that there there are different perspectives on this. And we can argue about this and debate about it until the Lord comes. I'm pretty sure that when when we get there in heaven, we're going to, gee, none of us were right. Okay, uh, so, but the point of the first five verses is not to, to lay out the details of the end times. The point of those first five verses is to tell us that to be prepared. It, it's to tell us that, yeah, the Lord's coming back. Uh, it's going to happen in a very specific way. Nobody completely understands when. Nobody completely understands exactly how it's going to happen, but you can believe that he's coming back, and you should be prepared for his return. 
You should live like he's coming back. Every moment of your life should be dedicated to the truth that Jesus Christ is going to come back and gather his church. And that there will come a time when men can no longer repent. So as you, as you share the gospel, as you put on display this transformation that you've been through, bear in mind that there's an urgency here. That those who are lost need to hear the truth. And you can talk about a lot of things to them, but the most eternal thing you can talk to them about is their spiritual health, their welfare, their relationship with Jesus Christ. Be prepared. Live like people who have been transformed. Well, Paul never just leaves anything hanging. He always tells his readers how to do what he calls them to do, and he does exactly that starting in verse 6. He says, don't be asleep. Don't be asleep. What? Should we not nap? No, he's talking about don't be asleep in your faith. Don't be unaware of what's going on around you. Be alert. Keep your eyes open. Look for the opportunities to put Jesus Christ on display. Look for the opportunities to tell people about Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked about this a number of times, and evangelism can be kind of scary, amen? It can be kind of intimidating, amen? Who wants to walk up to somebody and go, have you heard about Jesus Christ? And they get that look on their face. Okay, and so we have learned all these ways to do this, the four spiritual laws, uh, the, 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 Ro- the Roman road, the number of things, and, and those are all good techniques, and, you know, one of the best ones I've seen is Kirk Cameron and, and the whole, you know, have you ever sinned, have you ever, have you ever lied, have you ever stolen anything, I like that. But I think we've been so good at conveying these ways to, to convey the gospel that it makes a lot of us afraid that we're going to mess it up. I don't know the third Roman road. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I'm not really familiar with the spiritual laws. And if I don't get them right, this person will be lost and go to hell. And it's going to be my fault. That's not how the gospel works, brothers and sisters. We just share Jesus Christ. And if, if we don't know the Roman road, if we don't know the four spiritual laws, we just say, you know what? I, I repented from my sins. I've turned from them. And God has redeemed me. And my life has been transformed. And now I live for him. That's the gospel. And if the Holy Spirit is working on the person you're talking to, they'll go, oh, I'd like to hear more. Well, I don't know what to tell you other than life is different for me. I found peace. I found joy. It doesn't mean all my problems are gone, but I found meaning to my life. And when I read the Bible, something happens. And if the Holy Spirit is not working on that person, it's not on you. All God wants us to do is talk about his son. That's why Paul talks about the transformation at the beginning of the letter. I've seen it in you. Now show it to other people. So we don't go asleep. We're alert. We're looking for opportunities to share our faith. Verse 8, it says to be sober. And that just means to be self-controlled. And self-controlled means not to let our emotions get a hold of us. Not to let anger carry us away and nullify the gospel. Not to let our feelings interfere with what God says is true about him and his son and his word. Not to, let, not to be overwhelmed by our situations, but to be self-controlled and keep our focus not on those things around us that might cause us problems, but on Jesus Christ, who is the answer to all of our problems. To be self-controlled, to be sober. To express faith and hope and love. 
And then in verse 11, it tells us to encourage one another and to build one another up. Now, I want you to think about this for a second because I think this is significant. We are to be encouragers of one another. Now, we, again, here at Warrington Bible Fellowship, I think we do a good job at that. We encourage one another. But when Paul is talking about one another, he's talking about one another in the body of Christ, not just here in this local church. So we are to be encouragers of other members of the body of Christ, whether they be Presbyterian or Lutheran, or as long as they recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our obligation to each other is to uplift. That should take care of a lot of debates over how we baptize each other, how we walk in the Spirit, how the gifts function in our assemblies, whether or not this prophet or that prophet is right, whether or not we take communion the same way, what happens. We're to be encouragers of each other. It doesn't mean that we have to adopt each other's ways. It just means we have to recognize that we're all going to be in heaven someday. And all this stuff that, that, that divides us and causes tension among us is just going to be gone. Encourages one another. We're looking for people who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're to encourage them here in the local church and outside the church, the body of Christ. Build one another up. So again, Paul gives his list of things to do, uh, but he doesn't leave his audience hanging. He tells him how to do all of these things he calls them to do in the first 11 verses of chapter 5. And that leads us into our passage today. Verse 12, he said, number one is to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, that's another point that Warrington Bible Fellowship has a really good thing going on. I mean, you know, you, you guys take care of me and, and Scott and Diane and, and Conrad and our, our spouses and the people who are volunteers here. We, we feel your prayers. We feel your love. Uh, you've got this respect down fine. Praise God. That's fantastic. And he says, be at peace among yourselves. Again, I, I think we have that here. We, we've had sometimes, I've, I've been senior pastor now for 15 years. I've been on staff for almost 18 years. And you know what? We've gone through some times where there's been some tension. We've had people from time to time stand up that were unhappy with the way things were going, uh, unhappy with decisions that were made and will cause tension, will cause some strife. Well, you know what? Uh, we have survived those. They've moved on, and uh, our core group has stayed together, and we've moved forward. And every time we lose a few, we, we shrink down a little bit, and then we start to grow again. But Warrington Bible Fellowship, by and large, has that peace thing down right. Uh, but what we also have to understand is like encouraging one another. We have to be at peace with other members of the body. And as we go out into the community, as we... Uh, amp up our efforts for outreach. We're going to come into contact with other churches. Warrington Gospel Partnership is part of that. We'll be working hand in hand with them. They don't always believe the same things we believe. They don't always have the same, what we call ecclesiology. 
Ecclesiology is how we do church. What happens on Sunday morning when we come together? They might not have the same ecclesiology. They might not have exactly the same doctrine, but they are lovers of Christ, and we are to be at peace with them. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, because we're the body of Christ, and we're supposed to portray to the community the unity and love and compassion of our Father in heaven. And if we're squabbling with each other about how, you know, what songs we play, you guys don't even have a pipe organ, somebody told me a long, long time ago. Okay, if we're squabbling over that sort of thing, all the community does is look at us and go, I don't need to be part of that. So we're supposed to work at being at peace with each other. I love this admonition because we have to conscientiously apply ourselves to being at peace with each other. In verse 14 he says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, watch this, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. He said, admonish those, it doesn't say admonish those that can't work, it admonish those that won't work. Admonish those that refuse to support themselves. Okay? Uh, strengthen the weak. And, and je- overall, be encouragers uh, of those who are fearful. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. It says, be patient with them all. I've got to confess, sometimes I get frustrated. Sometimes I get frustrated because things don't go the way I'd like them to go. Sometimes I get frustrated because sometimes people will say I'll do something and they don't. And it just makes me want to scrunch up inside and go, oh! It's not being patient. It's not being patient. So we're supposed to express patience. Now, it's easy to be patient when I'm patient. You hear what I'm saying? It's hard to be patient when everything around me says it's time to be impatient. It's very easy for me to say, you know what? I've been patient long enough. I've put up with this long enough. I've had just about enough of this. And all I can imagine when that strikes me, my heart breaks for my posture before my Lord because all I can see is him looking down from the cross and saying, you know what? I've had enough patience with you. You're doing nothing but frustrating me. You're going to have to get up here and hang yourself. The Lord never did that. The Lord never ran out of patience, never ran out of compassion for me, never ran out of compassion for you. And he calls us to be a reflection of him. He calls us to be a representation of his likeness to people that are lost and frustrated their own. They don't need to see my frustration. They need to see the love of Jesus Christ coming through me. Be patient with all of them. Wow. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. We all know where that goes. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Okay, that's a tough one. But then we see this. And here's the bookend to the beginning of the letter. Pray without ceasing. And I've got to tell you something. It's the key to everything we've been talking about. Pray without ceasing. Now, does this mean that 
if I go down on my knees first thing in the morning, I have to stay there all day long? Does it mean that I've got to have my hands folded and, and reciting thou arts and so on and so forth without ceasing? No, that's not what Paul's trying to say. Paul's trying to say that we should live lives that are focused on God. That we should be aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit is in us, guiding us through all of these things that he just told us to do. And it will just be sensitive to his presence. It will just be sensitive to what we know to be true in the word. Then our lives will become a prayer. Our lives will become one God-centered, God-praising, God-displaying attitude of prayer to the world. And when the world looks at us, they will see Jesus Christ and not us. That moment to moment, will we depend upon our Father to lead us through that moment, to give us the patience that we need, to give us the capability to encourage each other, to give us the discernment to know who are the idle and who are the weak. Our lives become an expression of our relationship with our Father in heaven. Our lives become a transforming, evidencing example of Jesus Christ in us. Pray without ceasing. Okay, how do we do that? Again, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. In verse 18, he says, give Thanks in all circumstances. Now, we just went through a whole series in 2 Corinthians about this. Uh, Second, what what was that book? (laughs) Corinthians. Timothy. Give thanks in all circumstances. There's a tough one. There's a tough one. It's hard to give thanks in all circumstances. It's hard to give thanks when we're grieving. It's hard to give thanks when when we're in trouble, when we're under pressure. Doesn't say put a smile on everything. Doesn't say paint a smiley face on all this and pretend you're a nice Christian. It says to give thanks. Again, this is something that we have to consciously do. It's something that we have to work against our instincts to do. So Paul doesn't just leave it there. Check this out. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, that has a double meaning in in this particular verse. It is the will of God for us to give thanks in all things. That's clear. But check this out. He says, give thanks in all circumstances because every circumstance that you're in is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Every circumstance that we are in is the will of God for us. That can be a tough pill to swallow. But it goes hand in hand with what Paul says in Romans. That all things work together for, for our good and for his glory. It doesn't mean that all things are going to be pleasant. It doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out the way we'd like it to turn out. But it does mean that whatever situation we're in, God has arranged in our lives, has allowed to happen in our lives for a particular reason. See, now this goes back to living our lives of prayer. If we understand that everything that we endure is there for a reason, we can then turn to God and say, show me, teach me. Instead of praying for our felt need, which is to get out of the situation, 
we can pray for God to teach us, to encourage us, to nourish us, to grow us, to draw us closer to Him through the situation. It's His will. And, and i got to tell you something. If it's not, if we're in a situation that's not God's will, we're in trouble, brothers and sisters. Now, we may be outside of his commandments, but God intends to teach us in those situations. But if, if, if we think that we are the victim of circumstances, that God is powerless against our situation, that he's not involved in it, that he's not going to use it for our good and for his glory, we are all lost because God's not sovereign. How many times have you had somebody say to you, this isn't God's will for me. No, God hasn't had anything to do with this. He's got everything to do with it. Everything to do with it. The question is how we endure it. Do not quench the spirit. That will be the subject for another sermon. Do not despise prophecies. Same sermon. But test everything. You know, when we get into quenching the spirit and, and, and prophecies, all of those movements, all of those expressions of the gifts are to be tested against Scripture. And hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to that that is from God and you can discard the rest. Abstain from every form of evil. So we've seen this foundational prayer in chapter 1. We've seen this foundational teaching in chapter 5. And if we look closely, we're going to see this hint. This hint to the answer to the original question we started with. Is there more? I mean, we've, we've just cracked the lid. We just started moving that panel that was in my wall. And there's light behind it. There's light in this container we're looking into. Pray that that light might shine brightly over the next couple months as we look at how Paul prays and how he shows us to pray. And we look at what if there's more. Pray that we can learn how to pray without ceasing. Let's prepare our hearts with this in mind, with the fact that there may be more. You know, some of us may already be there. Some of us may get all this. And I would pray that you would have patience with us as we work our way through it. Uh, and, and as you lift up those Paul-type prayers for us, uh, keep in mind that we're all learning. Amen? So I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward. Prepare your hearts for, for uh, communion.